Becky Gannon, and welcome to Museum Month on Mad About Miniatures. Today, I'm talking to Laura Taylor, Curator of Interpretation at the National Museum of Toys and Miniatures in Kansas City, Missouri. She's going to tell us some fabulous behind-the-scenes stories about their magnificent miniature collection. After that not-to-be-missed interview, stick around and I'll reveal who the next guest is on Museum Month for Mad About Miniatures. Now let's go to Laura. Hello, Laura. I'm so glad to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to be here. Now, I have been to the National Museum of Toys and Miniatures, and it was just a highlight for me. It's just fantastic. But for those listeners who haven't had the pleasure of going, can you tell us a little bit about it? I sure can. The museum was founded in 1982 here in Kansas City, Missouri, by two women, Mary Harris Francis and Barbara Marshall. And they were girlhood friends. And when they were adults, they were both collecting small things. And they started to go on trips together. And they were collecting very different things. Mary Harris Francis was particularly interested in children's toys and children's dollhouses, whereas Barbara Marshall was interested in fine scale art miniatures. And so they weren't competing against one another in purchasing. And so it just made a really nice partnership. And they came back from a trip and they were showing Mary Harris Francis's mother some things that they had gotten on their trip. And she said, if you girls get one more thing, you're going to have to open a museum. And they realized the one thing that they liked better than collecting was sharing with other people. So they began to look for a place to open the museum and settled on the Terman Mansion here in Kansas City at the at the corner of 52nd and Oak, which was at that time a 7,500 square foot mansion built in 1911. And they filled it up and continued to add to the building. So now it's 33,000 square feet. So that's how the museum started. Wow, that is a fantastic story. And I would have to say that, yes, one of the great pleasures of collecting miniatures is really sharing them with others. Yes, I unfortunately never got to know Mary Harris Francis. She passed away the year before I came to the museum. But I had four years with our co-founder, Barbara Marshall, who collected the fine scale miniatures. And one of her very favorite things to do was to go out into the gallery Uh, no name tag, and just talk to people about miniatures. And they never realized that they were talking to the museum co-founder. They thought that they had just met a really knowledgeable docent. But that's what she really loved to do. She sounds like a really genuine and interesting person. Oh, she was amazing. So you are the curator of interpretations. Tell me what that title means. Well, that title simply means that I work on the way that the collection is interpreted, that may be through public programs or printed materials or exhibits. Exhibits is something that I share with our curator of collections. We both work on exhibits, and she's tasked with taking care of the the collection. So it makes for a nice partnership. But really, my job is to make sure that we're telling good stories and we're telling stories that are true and accurate, and stories that appeal and are interesting to people. Wow, that is really interesting. Can you give me sort of a concrete example of a display or design decision that you made? Sure. So before our renovation in 2015, we did a a major renovation. 
we did a survey with our visitors and we asked them about their experiences in the museum. And one of the things that they asked, particularly about the miniatures, is why? Why does someone do this? How do people do this? And so we worked on a couple of different exhibit additions to help with that. And one of them was a kiosk where we talk about the history of fine scale miniatures. And then the other one is called the Artist Studio. And I actually went to visit William R. Robertson and Leanne Chellis Wessel with a film crew, and we filmed them working on miniatures. And so we're able to show four different processes in that exhibit. That's actually been one of uh, the highlights of my career is being able to go and make those films. Kind of a funny thing about that is our exhibit designers at the time said to me, you know, those videos are way too long. They're about four minutes each. People never sit and watch those. And people do. (laughs) People watch all four of them from beginning to end. So it's really nice to see that visitors are connecting with those processes and that they're willing to put that time and energy into, into learning about it. I didn't feel they were at all too long when I went. I saw all four and I can't remember which one, but I watched at least one of them twice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'd love to hear that. I think that seeing the artists work and the tools that they use and hearing them talk about it in their own words is, is really exciting. It really is. It really adds a dimension. And one of the things you said when we talked before is that sometimes when they work on miniatures, it also serves to preserve some of the historical building methods of the time and of times past. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that I love about miniatures. And of course, as a, as a history person, that gives me the goosebumps. But we live in a really mass-produced world, and we don't have to make our own furniture or our own clothing. And so these artists, these fine-scale artists, are often doing incredible amount of research, going through what might be like an 18th century catalog or studying the tools that were used during a period of history in order to understand how things were created. And then they have to turn around and figure out how to do that in miniature. So, for example, planing a piece of wood for miniatures, you know, you might need to stop and make a miniature plane in order to be able to do that. So they're really preserving and practicing the skills that might be lost otherwise. And I think that that's one of so many special things about fine scale miniatures. It really is. It's like having a little miniature Williamsburg. Yes. Exactly. Now, I was hoping you could actually explain to our listeners, you know, what does the term fine scale miniature mean? Fine scale miniature is a miniature that is perfect in scale. So the ratio of the small is in harmony with the ratio of the large. So the most popular scale for fine scale artists to work in is one twelfth scale. So that's one inch equals 12 inches. But when we talk about fine scale within the movement, the art movement, we're talking um, not only about perfect and scale, but also the fact that they are oftentimes functioning the way that they would in the full scale world as well. So the little drawers open, the hinges work, their secret compartments, all of that good stuff. And then in the fine scale miniature art world, 
oftentimes these pieces are, you know, taking a really long time to make. They might take weeks or even years to make, and they're made by people who identify as artists. So that's what we mean by fine scale in the museum anyway. So when you said secret drawers, I thought of a piece in the collection that we had talked about. I believe it was made in 1924, one of the older pieces, and it's a desk with many compartments, some of which are secret. It's such a fascinating story. Can you tell us about that piece? Oh, yes. I love to talk about that piece. It was made by an artist named Frank Early. He was working in the 1920s in England, and he produced six of these secretary desks. So secretary uh, meaning that it's got drawers on the bottom, it's got a desk that folds down, and then it's got a glass bookcase on top. It's that Queen Anne style, so there's a broken pediment with a finial, there's Queen Anne legs, and it's just a really beautifully proportioned, elegant work. It has ebony and holly, two different woods, starbursts that are actually inlaid in the walnut veneer. So it's, it is a veneered piece. It's got these inlays of starbursts, and some of the slivers of the starbursts are five thousandths of an inch. Incredible. The interior has some ivory decor, some ivory casings and knobs and whatnot. And there are 19 secret compartments inside this piece, um, which I always say is just showing off. (laughs) It is, but it's the best kind of showing off. The best kind of showing off. Another thing about it is when it came into the collection, It was cleaned by William R. Robertson, a very famous artist in the fine scale miniature movement. And he discovered two tiny little hand painted postcards in one of the drawers. No. That I love. You know, not only did it have 19 secret compartments in it, but these two little postcards survived all of these decades. So I think that that's really amazing. So I mentioned that he made six of these secretaries that we know of. One of them is in Queen Mary's Dollhouse at Windsor Castle. Wow. One of them was purchased by Narcissa Thorne. And of course, she created uh, or authored rather the Thorne Rooms at the Art Institute of Chicago. Three are in other private collections. I may be missing one. But anyway, so it's a really special piece. It's one of our oldest pieces because most of our fine scale miniatures date to the um, 1970s forward. So it's, it's a really special piece. It really is. I looked at it and I came back to it about three times on my trip. <laughs> yeah. So can you explain to our listeners why so many of the pieces are from the 1970s forwards and a little bit about that fine arts scale movement? Yeah. So the 1970s, there was a big explosion of interest in fine scale miniatures. And it's really kind of this dollhouse movement. You know, people want to have dollhouses. They want to have things to put in their dollhouses. And so we see this miniature uh, shows popping up across the country. This is a period of time when there's a popularity in, you know, the handicraft movement in hobbies. But leading up to that in the 20th century, there are several things that happen I mentioned Queen Mary's Dollhouse at Windsor Castle, which was finished in 1924, but this is after World War I. 
And Queen Mary's Dollhouse was really not only a gift to Queen Mary, but also an example of British craftsmanship because there was this big luxury tax on the nobility at that time. And so a lot of craftsmen were out of work. They weren't able to sell their skill. And so this was an opportunity for them to show their skill and advertise that. It was also a record of the way that a king and a queen would have lived in the early part of the 20th century. And when you think about them, they had they had just been through this really big, devastating war. So they understood that their lives were changing, you know, that this was going to be kind of a three-dimensional record of that because things were going to change. Right. The Queen Mary's Dollhouse went on display at the Crystal Palace exhibit in 1924. So it was open to the public. It wasn't just, you know, miniatures or this private thing that the wealthy get to enjoy, but it was something that everybody got to see at the exhibit. Following Queen Mary's Dollhouse, we also have Colleen Moore's Fairy Castle and the Thorn Rooms in the 30s and the 40s. So Colleen Moore's Fairy Castle, of course, was created by Colleen Moore, the the famous silent film star. She had always loved miniatures as a child and as an adult. After her divorce, it was a way to sort of distract herself. Her father suggested that they build this fantastic dollhouse. And so they did. And unlike Queen Mary's dollhouse, which was designed by an architect, this dollhouse, the fairy castle, was designed by a set designer because, of course, Colleen Moore came from the Hollywood set. And so she was using people that she knew. So she had a set designer design this. When it was finished, she took it on tour throughout the United States and raised $600,000 for children's charities. And this is during the Great Depression. Really? Now, I have seen the castle, and it is just beautiful and glamorous, exactly what you think a Hollywood star's miniature would look like. And all sorts of famous film stars and set people, you know, contributed it. But I did not realize that she used it to raise money like that. She did. So in both cases with Queen Mary's Dollhouse and the Thorn Rooms, we're seeing this philanthropic component, this, you know, Mm -hmm. wanting to raise money to benefit children. I love that story because two of our volunteers who have both since passed on, both of them lived in different places and both saw Colleen Moore's Fairy Castle when they were children and it impacted them throughout their lives and they became interested in miniatures because of that. So it did have a really big impact on a American children. And then the third one is the Thorn Rooms, which were created by Narcissa Thorne, who was the daughter-in-law of the founder of Montgomery Ward. A very wealthy woman, also interested in miniatures from childhood, and she and her husband traveled in Europe after World War I. So they got to see the devastation there, and she began to think about, about that aspect of it. And so she also was influenced by the room setting trend that was happening in the museums at that time. So major museums were starting to install period rooms. And of course, these were beautiful rooms that that preserved a particular style from French to early American. And she was interested in that. And she thought, well, what if you had those in miniatures and you could, you know, save space and have even more? 
And so she ended up creating a set of rooms that were displayed at the Chicago Historical Society. And they were so popular that she had actually used miniatures that she had in her collection. They were so popular that she decided to start from scratch. Wow. She created her own workshops. She had people working on these miniatures from all over the place and created a set of 68 rooms, which are now at the Art Institute of Chicago. If you haven't seen them, they're down in the basement and they're they're amazing. We often call them the grandmother of our collection because they had such an impact on people um, in the United States. But again, they went on public display. So no longer were miniatures just about, you know, wealthy people having collections. They were something that everybody could enjoy and go see. So that all happened in the early 20th century. Miniatures got to be important enough that Hobbies Magazine began to carry an article called Miniaturia in the 1940s about the collecting and making of miniatures. There's a lot of different things that are going on. We also have Colonial Williamsburg. We have a lot of house museums cropping up in the 20th century. There's a lot of young people that are spending their time as children visiting these places, and it's having a big impact on their interests. And so by the 1970s, I'm sorry, we're finally to the 70s. That is okay. Yeah, we get to the 70s, and there's this handicraft movement, the bicentennial, where people are more interested in Americana. And so we see this big interest in miniatures. But out of that movement, there rose uh, kind of to the top a group of artists that began to make fine scale miniatures at a museum level. And those are the the artists that our co-founder, Barbara Marshall, was interested in collecting in the 1970s. Wow, that is so interesting. I was a child in the 70s, and the first big dollhouse I remember is the one in the Smithsonian. Ah, Uh, We used to live um, in Washington, D.C., and we would go quite often. And whenever we went, I would always go there first. Yeah. To me, the Smithsonian one and Colleen's Moore, you know, those are dollhouses. Where I think of the Thorn Rooms almost as studies in interior design. Uh, Yeah, I think that the Colleen Moore's uh, fairy castle actually does not have any dolls living in it. So the the fairies are just imaginary. True. The Thorn Rooms and Queen Mary's dollhouse, none of these are populated with figures, which I think is interesting. But I would say definitely the tables start to turn with the Thorn Rooms in in terms of looking at this seriously through the sense of preservation and interior design. I think you're totally right on that. Right. And when you talked about quality you would have in a museum, whose job is it to look at the pieces and decide what is museum quality and what aspects go into that decision? Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a step back and talk about our co-founder, Barbara Marshall, for just a moment. Absolutely. Because she's the one that built the collection and she built my connoisseurship of it. But she was the daughter of Joyce Hall, who founded Hallmark. And from a very early age, he began training her on how to critique artwork. So, you know, when she was a little girl, he would bring artwork and put it on the kitchen table for her to look at. Wow. As an adult, she worked at Hallmark. She sat on the committee that approved the artwork. 
So she was raised in a situation where it was the family business to have that connoisseurship to understand what was good and what had appeal. Also, when she was in her 30s, she was trained at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art here in Kansas City to be a docent in the decorative arts department. The docent training was done by the director of the museum, Lawrence Sickman. And so she was trained by Lawrence Sickman. And American decorative arts was something that she had been raised with. It was something that um, her parents had in their home. And then she had this additional training at the uh, Nelson Atkins. So when she turned her attention to fine scale miniatures, it was with an understanding of how furniture or the textiles, how it was made. She understood what the details should be. And so when I started at the museum, I had about four years with her and she wasn't uh, the type of person who would say, oh, look at this detail or, or look at that detail. Like she didn't formally train me. I just sort of tried to get as much as I could. Because she had it in every pore of her being, right? She really did. I actually wrote my master's thesis about her and I tell the story about how we were looking at a particular work in another museum, a fine scale work. And I said, why don't you have this in your collection? And she said, well, it lacks weight. And I thought, what does that mean? It all lacks weight. It's tiny. <laughs> a couple of years later, I was in the gallery and I was looking at something and I, I was just sort of imagining holding it. And in my mind's eye, it weighed as much as a full scale piece. And then that's when I realized what she meant about it lacks weight. It has to look like the full scale, even in the sense of how you imagine it would feel. You know what I mean? I do. Like, like you have to be able to look at that and say, that's the real thing. Right, exactly. It has heft, it has the same quality materials. It's not really made of toothpicks or whatever it's made of, you know? Yes. And so the job of selecting objects for the collection since she retired is the job of the curators here. We do a lot of discussion and sometimes we're selecting based on, you know, what we don't have in the collection. But we're also trying to select it based on the the criteria that she would have selected it on. So its level of craftsmanship, its proportion, the way it takes up space, its weight. So it's it's a serious conversation. But it's not cut and dry. You have to sort of channel her essence. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Take a deep breath and think, you know... What would Barbara have done? You know? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, you told me uh, some interesting things about her commission work and how she really propelled not just the museum, but the art form forward through it. Yes, because she was used to working with artists at Hallmark, because that was something that she was very comfortable with, she would find an artist that she thought met her standards, you know, somebody that was doing really great work. And then she would say to them, I want you to make something for me. I want it to be the thing that you've always dreamed of making. And I'm going to support that. Wow. So she allowed them to push the boundaries of the art form, because they knew they had a buyer for it. They knew that she was going to pay them for it. 
I often say that our collection is full of artist dreams because she had this method of commissioning and she really set aside her own ego in pursuit of this artistic per- perfection. That's very rare. Yeah, it is. She must have been a really special person. Yes, she was. We just lost her this April. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, it's nice that her memory and so much of her work lives on in the museum. Yes, I think that the works themselves are just such a a testament to her legacy. Yes, and you also told me that even the way they're displayed, she wanted it to look a certain way as you walked in. She did. When the Fine Scale Miniature Gallery was originally designed in 2004, she had a great hand in that. She worked with William R. Robertson on the design. And the room that you're referring to is the Masterpiece Gallery. And that's an oval room. Uh, That's a shape that she was really attracted to. And she wanted it to be a cross between a bank vault and a jewelry store. So when you walk in, it's flanked with these marble columns and you walk in and it's got this polished black marble floor and the lighting is very dim. And then there are these individual cases on the wall and those cases have individual works of art and they're lit. And what she wanted was for people to get up and get close to those objects and sort of have an intimate experience with them similar to the the experience that she had with them, the idea of just you and that object alone, and you're able to appreciate all of those details without any other distractions. You also see that throughout the galleries in terms of architectural works, and we have room settings, but there are a lot of things that are just displayed individually in wall cases because she considered them all individual works of art. Well, they really are. And they're really, especially when you walk into that room, your jaw sort of drops. And it's like there's all these little jewels laid out for you to go discover. Yes. I'll mention the 1924 secretary that we talked about. It's in that room. There's also a really lovely microscope by William R. Robertson. And it's a Rococo microscope. The original is in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And he talked them into letting him take that original microscope apart and study it. So he he actually went and did that at the Met. And then he was able to create the miniature. And it's made out of Canadian gold maple leaf coins. All of the parts are machined. There's this just tiny little finial at the top that you can unscrew. And that's where you would look through the scope. And it's all functioning. So all of the the mirror, all of the lenses are there. The scope is covered in baby shark skin, chagrin. And it's the right proportion for the scale. And he bought that chagrin in a shop in Paris years before he knew that he was going to do this project. And then my very favorite part about this is that he needed to burnish the gold. You know, the gold needed to be polished to, to be bright. And in the 18th century, you would do this with the tooth of a wolf. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He didn't have the tooth of a wolf, but his little puppy Molly was losing her baby teeth. So that little microscope is actually burnished with puppy teeth. And I just love that detail. But when you say it's a jewel box, I mean, this little microscope, you know, is just the perfect example of that. It's made out of precious metal and it just glows and it just has the sweetest story. It 
That is incredible. And the best use of a lost puppy tooth I've ever heard. I know, I know. <laughs> and that little microscope, I remember reading, it's a working microscope, you know, for yeah. all those miniature scientists out there. Yes. <laughs> Truly incredible. There is one room that really sticks in my memory, and it's this beautiful kind of Art Deco jewelry store. And I wondered if you could just tell me a little bit more about it than I know. Sure. So the Art Deco jewelry store is in the maze, and it was commissioned from a pair of artists, Kevin Mulvaney and Susie Rogers. And Mrs. Marshall went to them, Barbara went to them and said, you know, I like your work and I would like for you to make something for my collection. And what would you like to make? And they turned it around on her and said, we want to make what you've always dreamed of having. Oh, Yes. And I love this story because this was her last commissioned work for the museum. So I love that her last commissioned work was really something that she wanted. That's so fitting. So they talked about different great ages in jewelry design and they settled on the Art Deco because Kevin and Susie were staying in Cincinnati at the Cincinnati uh, Netherland Hotel, mm-hmm. which is a great art example of Art Deco design. And so the whole time that they stayed there, they said they didn't go out into Cincinnati. They spent the whole time like uh, taking photographs and, and measuring things. But the the room itself is based on that hotel, the Ocean Liner Normandy, and then Neiman Marcus in Chicago. So it's not a real place. It's a place that they have designed based on lots of different influences. What it is, is the most beautiful jewelry store ever. Yes, it's the most ideal jewelry store. It really is. And those curved walls, it's just magnificent. It is. Barbara told them that she wanted it to go into a particular space. And the space is more vertical than it is horizontal. Horizontal. So they had to figure out how to create this really grand room in this space. And so they ended up doing a two-story room, but there's a balcony. So when you get up into looking into the room, you don't realize it until you get up right in front of it that it goes up and up and up. <laughs> That's one of the things I like about it that makes it so unique. I'm sure you noticed the beautiful paneling in the room. That's rosewood. It's like the most beautiful wood I think I've ever seen. Rosewood is a substitute for mahogany, and it has the correct proportion of grain. And then there's also six different types of marble, and those the marble is all faux painted. It looks like real marble. It looks like real mar- marble, yes. And then there's these big, huge silver doors in the back of the jewelry store. Those took 100 hours to make before they were even silvered. That's how labor-intensive they were. Oh, my goodness. Was it a mold? It's silver work, so I believe they probably would have made a mold. They are very beautiful, so intricate. And what about that chandelier? The chandelier was beaded by Robert Ward. The base of it was made by William R. Robertson, and the and the beading was done by Robert Ward. And there are 15,800 beads on the chandelier. 15,800. Yes. That is incredible. I guess it was so intricate, he had time to count as he was making it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he had to do a lot of planning ahead of time. I'm sure he did. Now, I remember reading that the jewels in the case are made from real gemstones. Is that true? Yeah, some precious and some semi-precious stones. 
And those were done by Laurie M. Potts in Canada. And she did not only the jewelry, but also like the little forms that you see that the jewelry sits on and the interior of the cases, all of that good stuff. And this was really an international effort because Kevin and Susie, uh, the architectural artists, are English. Robert Ward is English, but Lorianne Potts is uh, Canadian. And then the two figures that are in the room are by Maria Jose Santos in Spain. Uh, I'm sorry, did I say three figures? There are three figures in the room. Okay. All three by her. So it didn't take a village. It took a whole international miniature (laughs) community. Yeah. And one of the things that I love in terms of collaboration, Kevin and Susie specified that they wanted the room to be lit at twilight because they love that sort of magic hour when when jewels are very sparkly. And so the lighting is done at twilight. And when Maria Jose Santos heard about that, she actually put a little faint five o'clock shadow on the gentleman's cheeks. That is an incredible detailed touch. Yes. I'm glad that the stories that go with it are as special as the piece itself. Yes. One of the things we talked about is, you know, when you first tell people you're in miniatures, some people are like, why are you making a dollhouse, you know, for kids? And Mm -hmm. so is it a craft? Is it an art form? At what point does it become an art form? And I would love to get your take on that. Yeah, I think miniatures do sort of suffer under cuteness. (laughs) They, (laughs) They sort of have this cute cross to bear. The thing about it that I think is interesting is that it really is an art form in the sense of the decisions that the artists have to make in order to create these works. And I think that oftentimes people will say, well, you're just making something, but you're just making it a miniature. You're just copying something. When you're creating a a work of art, you're adding to an art form. And in this case, for example, if you're creating a Chippendale cabinet in 12 scale, you're not contributing to the art form of Chippendale, you're contributing to the art of fine scale miniatures. It is a movement. It is an art movement on its own. I totally agree. And you know, that argument that you're just making a copy of something, you know, doesn't really hold up. Because what about all the the Renaissance artists who painted still lives of bowls of fruit and vases. I mean, they were, quote unquote, copying, you know, still life arrangements, but it's still art. Right. If you were going to make a fine scale miniature of one of those paintings, you would be contributing to the art of fine scale miniature making by deciding what details you were going to emphasize, the color palette that you were going to use so it wouldn't be garish, the interpretation of of how you were going to paint it. So there's so much there that's up to the individual artist. We have in the collection Louis XV's study from the Palace of Versailles, and we have um, the desk of the king, and both the room setting and the desk were made by Harry Smith. And when you look at the desk, it's got 36 species of wood in it. It's just um, amazing. But it looks like the desk would look now. We also have on loan to us from Eden Ravencroft, their corporate collection of miniatures, and we have the same desk by Dennis Hillman who created it to look the way that it would have looked 200 years ago with more vibrant colors. And those are two different artists making two different decisions about the way that they are going to interpret that desk with stunning results in both cases. 
Right. I think that's a really good example. That really helps clarify it, I think. You know, one of the things when I tell people I go to miniature museums, they say, well, what does your husband do (laughs) during that time? And he comes with me and he enjoys it. Do you find that the person who has gotten, quote unquote, dragged along ends up getting entranced and enraptured by the displays? All the time. Um, We often see that where the person who is dragging their feet because they didn't want to come to the toy miniature museum gets in there and they're the ones that have to be dragged out because they have found something that appeals to them or they're entranced by the level of craftsmanship. I always say that we have something for everyone. Well, I know for the fine scale miniatures, it is the largest collection in the in the world. Is that correct? It is still the largest collection in the world of fine scale miniatures. A total in the museum, including the toys, we have around mid 80,000. For the miniatures, we have probably about 23,000 miniatures. That is incredible because I have trouble keeping up with my little coffee and wine cups. (laughs) Yes. I certainly don't have 23,000. We actually went through a major cataloging of our collection. Every single thing was photographed and put into a database with record with its accession and object ID numbers, even the little petty fours or the um, the little pocket knife, you know, that's about the size of a grain of rice. How long did that take? It took us years. Oh, it's daunting. Yeah, it is pretty daunting. Just in the children's dollhouses, those dollhouses have as much in them as you would have in your own house. (laughs) So it's like cataloging. Each of those is like cataloging a historic house. Each item in that house is cataloged separately. Yes. So, for example, I did an, uh, an exhibit on dollhouses of the 20th century in 2019, and there was one dollhouse, the Jean Clark Perry dollhouse which was a child's dollhouse, but it was created by the mother and father. And it's just an incredible, intricate detail. But I was setting it up for the exhibit, and it had over 400 objects inside the dollhouse. When you're working with that, I guess you just have to be very careful. Our collection staff just does such an amazing job of keeping track of everything. They're really amazing. And you have sort of a miniature that's on the top of a lipstick case. How do they clean that? With makeup brushes, we're about to do an all-staff cleaning. Our collections department is constantly cleaning, but we try to do a big clean every year. Incredible. I mean, the professionalism, the care, the love of this collection, it's just, it's just wonderful. We want it to be around for a long time, and we want to uh, give it the best care that we can possibly give it. Just from the moment I walked in, it's such a special place. Well, I'm so glad you got to visit. I am too, and I really encourage your listeners, if there's any way you can go and visit, you will not regret it, and neither will the person you drag with you. <laughs> no. <laughs> they, they might end up not letting you leave. <laughs> right. Yeah, sometimes at the end of the day, I ask people if we're going to have to put them to bed in our tiny beds. <laughs> <laughs> and some of them are okay with that. Oh, my goodness. They should make a movie about the miniature museum at night. That would be fantastic. That would be. So anything else you would like to share with us? 
we're still a pretty affordable museum and adult admission is $8. And we're always working on things. So, you know, it certainly merits coming again and again. I've been here at the museum for 15 years and I still see things that surprise me. So you won't be disappointed. I can second that and I'm already planning my next trip back because I don't feel I saw it all. Right. Or if I did, I want to see it again. Yes. Well, it was so interesting and such a privilege to talk to you about this wonderful museum. Well, it's lovely to talk with somebody who appreciates it so much. I do. Thank you very much for your time, Laura, and for all the information. And I hope to be seeing you shortly at the museum, and I hope a lot of my listeners take the trek there, too. We'd love to see you. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. You, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I really enjoyed talking to Laura, and I hope you did, too. My next episode comes out September 21st, and do I have a treat for you. In keeping with our Museum Month theme, we will be talking to Kay Savage Browning, whose famous collection, the KSB Collection, is in the Kentucky Gateway Museum Center in Maysville, Kentucky. Kay is fascinating, and she has traveled the world collecting and commissioning miniatures. Not only is this a rare opportunity to hear from a founder of a major collection, but Kay is one of the most interesting and genuine people I have ever had the honor to talk to. I hope you'll tune in. In the meantime, it's your dollhouse, your rules. Goodbye.